Hello, Fellowship. Thank you for participating in the elder nomination process. After a deliberate season of prayer, discussion, and seeking the heart of God, our elders have three new candidates for the office of elder to present to you. Hello, Fellowship. My name is Bill Fries. My wife, Lee, and I have been attending Fellowship for over 15 years. During that time, I've been blessed to be part of small group ministry, such as community group leader, welcome and connection team member, prayer team member, and Discover Fellowship support. Our faith has grown from being members of Fellowship Church, and it's a humbling honor to be nominated as an elder candidate. Hi, Fellowship. My name is Charles Greathouse. My family and I have been attending Fellowship since 2008. My wife, Susan, and I have three children, Jonathan, Zachary, and Charlotte. I'm so grateful for how our body has encouraged, challenged, and led our family to the Word of God over the years. From engaging in and leading community groups to serving in FSM as a cell group leader, I have felt his hand at work in this place and through his people. I'm so very humbled and honored to serve you all as an elder candidate at Fellowship. Hi, my name is Nick Rowland, and my wife Cassie and I have been a part of Fellowship for 15 years married together and then many more years before that. And Fellowship has been a part of my journey walking with Jesus uh, in so many ways. Going back to middle school and growing up in FSM, I was discipled here and I was taught how to serve here. And as I moved into college and adult years volunteering in the student ministry and, and reaching a point in my adult life, my early adult life, where I became aware of the desperation of my hurts and my hangups and my habits. And at that time, Celebrate Recovery was a crucial place for me to begin the process of healing. And uh, I've been able to serve in student ministry, on the worship team, in the training center, community groups, and preaching. And it's been just a wonderful place for, for my wife and I to grow. We have a 12-year-old daughter uh, who is thriving here, and my wife serves in the, in, has served in many capacities, currently serves on the worship team. One of the things I appreciate most about this church is the fact that the focus is always put on Jesus and not on any one personality or leader. And so we all are broken people who need Jesus and need grace, and yet the Holy Spirit empowers us to serve in a lot of different ways, and that's a really exciting thing to be a part of. Uh, I'm deeply humbled and honored to be considered as an elder candidate. Thank you, Bill, Charles, and Nick for your willingness to participate in the elder nomination process as a candidate for the office of elder. It's a tremendous responsibility to be an elder of Fellowship Bible Church. Your willingness to be a candidate speaks highly of your character, integrity, commitment to Christ, and service to God through fellowship. Now, if you are a member of our church, we have one more request of you. If for some biblical reason, you feel you cannot follow a particular candidate's leadership, please email me, mirapier at fellowshipnwa.org, stating your biblical objection, and please do so no later than Thursday, February the 29th. After receiving your notice, I will call you personally, and we can discuss your objection, which must have merit based on biblical elder qualifications. We require that all elders have 100% affirmation from our body. If you have no objection, we assume that you are affirming the candidates the elders have set forth from the pool of nominees you provided. Please pray for these new candidates as well as our current elders. And finally, we would like to thank Roger Hill, 
and Scott Thompson for their years of faithful service as elders. They have represented our body well and will now become shepherding elders. If you see them, express your gratitude and appreciation for their years of faithful service. Blessings to each of you. Well, good morning, fellowship. Will you stand with us as we worship uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Spirit 
Would you all just take a deep breath with me? Let's breathe in and breathe out. And just recognize that we made it. We're here. And I think a lot of times for me, it's hard to be here all the way. My mind, my heart, my affections or, or distractions, they can be in other places, even if my physical body is here. And so let's just do that again. Take a breath together and recognize that we are here. And one thing that helps me be present is gratitude. Our family actually around the dinner table on post-it note, we go around and we say one thing that we're thankful for, and then we stick it up around a mirror that we have in our kitchen. And while it does make our dining room look extremely messy, if not a little bit trashy, but we have young kids, so there's an excuse. Um, it is just a good reminder and a call back to thankfulness and gratitude. And so we're gonna play two more songs, and during those, I would just ask that you would reflect and have something to be thankful to the Lord for, and so that in those moments where your mind might start to wander, your heart might start to wander, you can refocus back in on that same thing and say, oh God, there you are. Thank you, I'm here. And I invite you in that moment to ask the Lord, what, what is he saying to you right now? Because he's here, he's moving. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's good news. It's worth celebrating, but we've gotta be here and present to know how to celebrate. So let's take a moment, maybe close your eyes. Think of something that you're grateful for. That can be a little Ebenezer during these next two songs. Every day. 
bow your head and pray with me. Lord, we are here ourselves fully to you this morning. Thank you that your love for us is never changing, it's never ending, that you call us fully adopted, you fully holy and in control and awe-inspiring and yet you love us and you call us and you want us to be close. So we return this morning to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ah, it's good to be with you and to rest. Um, if you've got your Bibles, we will be in 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 9, Old Testament. Uh, we're in our David series. But before we get to that, I want to fill you in on an <clears throat> just a couple of things happening uh, around here. So uh, we are a church that's led by elders, um, and so occasionally we have elders that roll off and uh, new ones that come on, and so if you were here uh, early, which we know is very uh, hard to do, you would see that we have three uh, men who are being nominated uh, during this season, and so two of them actually worship here with us at Fellowship Bentville regularly, so Charles Greathouse and Bill Fries, and then Nick is a buddy of mine that's at Mosaic, our Saturday night congregation uh, at the Rogers campus, and so these are incredible uh, men of God if you don't know them. Um, if you do know them, this is the week to let us know if you have a biblical objection to one of them uh, leading. And so if you do, we, we want to hear that, okay? If you feel that prompting, um, please, please bring it forward. And you can do so by emailing Mickey, and uh, his, his email is up here. You can also find it on our website. Do that by this Thursday. He'll give you a call, and you all can process through that situation uh, together, but this is a really valuable uh, time for us 
as uh, these leaders roll on. So also be in prayer for this process. Uh, April 26th and 27th is our annual men's retreat out at Ponca Bible Camp uh, in the Buffalo. Uh, it is a beautiful, beautiful place. I've probably gone six or seven years now in a row and love getting out there uh, with, with you men. And so we wanted to get the date out early so you can mark your calendars. Also let you know it's only 60 bucks, but if you cannot afford that, um, please let us know. We would love to help cover the costs just so that you can get out there. We want to invite every man 16 and up, okay? There's only 120 uh, sheets of plywood to sleep on out there. But uh, you can also bring a tent because uh, there's plenty of tent camping, so we're probably not going to cap it at 120. Uh, pro tip, I just bring a tent anyways because I can't deal with snorers. But it's uh, a, sat a Friday and a Saturday, and um, if you're able to take off work on that Friday, I bet we'll have 75 of us that we're going to actually go out Thursday night. We have the camp reserved Thursday, just for a slow day. We won't start our teachings and stuff till Friday night, but we'll float the buffalo on Friday afternoon and just take it real slow. So that'll be a little extra charge to come out early, but we really, really want you uh, to come. So I want to invite you to join us. And then last thing, tonight is our young, it's actually our first young adult house worship. And so the Lord has been doing some incredible things, not only to bring young people to our city and our surrounding cities, but also through the doors of this church and through the doors of your homes, as we've had more and more young adult community groups, young married uh, groups launching, and we're still looking for leaders and multiplying those and all the things. And so um, if you're in your 20s or early 30s and you're not connected in one of those yet, this would be a place to come. So where's Aaron Morton? Are you here? Stand up. This is the guy to talk to for details for tonight. It'll be in a home... Uh, Near, uh, did I say sit down? There we go. It'll be, let them see you. Uh, so circle glasses, long hair, big smile. He'll get you the details uh, for tonight. It'll be in a home. It'll be very uh, chill and organic. Just come experience community. Uh, I've got a long day of ministry with some things this afternoon, so I'm looking forward just to be able to go and to worship. So you may be seated. Thank you, Aaron. All right, I think that's it. Here we go. Uh, week five of our eight-week study on the life of David in First and Second Samuel. And one thing to note, so in our Bibles, it is two books, First Samuel, Second Samuel. It's really one continuous story. Um, that probably comes from the, the length of scrolls back in the day. It was chopped into two books, and so our modern Bible has done it. But it's one continuous story. And the more I've read it and read specifically the Old Testament, the more I've realized that it's hard for me and probably for us as Westerners to read the Bible sometimes. And here's why, right? It's written, written in an Eastern context. It's written in a different language, so it's not even in English, so there's some translation things there. But also, you and I are trained linearly. We are trained to think linearly, to read, to speak, to preach in an A, to B, to C uh, fashion. And that's a little bit different than the way that Eastern writers wrote. So here's how I would uh, visualize uh, how they wrote stories. What do you see? Right, if you see a hostess cupcake, you got a problem, right? That's all I see. We had bacon for the rhythm series, now we got hostess. But you, you'll, you'll notice that Eastern writers, if we take this as how they write, it's still linear in a way. Like the story progresses, but it's not always uh, chronological. And the writers were very content moving pieces of the story forward or even backwards in order to emphasize certain themes or aspects of the story. And so we've seen some of those themes already, right? We, first week we saw just this beauty of the anointing um, from God to David 
well before he would actually be appointed king. But you've got this original story, and then we looked at David and Goliath and really see the power of God magnified. But if you remember, there were even some things in that story that kind of felt like they were a little bit out of place. Um, So two weeks ago, we saw the mercy of God really uh, highlighted through the mercy of David and how he could have killed Saul, but he didn't. He cut off uh, part of his cloak just to show that, show that mercy. Last week, we had some big stuff out of order, right? It's this... It's this Davidic covenant, kind of the peak of the Old Testament, and it's put way earlier into the story than it actually was. And I I put all this up here, not just to show you an excuse for why things might be out of order, but so that you and I can be on the same page and see that themes uh, are a huge, huge deal in the narrative of Scripture. And personally, I think that God moved that Davidic covenant up a little bit to set the stage for the story that we're going to see today just to scream with significance, when without it, it might just be somewhat overlooked. And so the theme that we're going to hit today is one of the greatest themes that we as modern Christians can study and center our lives on, on, and it's the theme of grace. Grace is the major currency of the Christian today, right? It's it's in so many ways how we show the love and truth of who Jesus is. Tag on forgiveness and service and laying our lives down as we communicate truth with grace. When you read the New Testament, that becomes abundantly clear. But when I study the Old Testament, sometimes it's easier for me to see, you know, maybe some of these, these other themes, to see the power of God, progressing his story, the sovereignty, like all these things. But what about grace and mercy? And I don't think I'm the only one because in conversations that I have consistently, I've heard this concept that, well, it just seems like the God of the Old Testament is angry and powerful and judgmental, and the God of the New Testament is gentle and full of grace and mercy. And we kind of draw this hard line between the two, which insinuates that are these two different gods that we're seeing here? And so hopefully you've been reading the full story of First and Second Samuel, even apart from the things that we're covering in here, because we're not hitting everything. And as you come across stories where you see like what, where this might look to be true, where the, the armies of Israel just wiping out like all of these groups of people, what do we do with that? I'll give you two things just to help frame your visual in there. Number one is remember that there's a greater story being told here, Right? When you think about the story of God starting really with a family and having to build to a nation, in order for that to take place, some major preservation by God was going to be needed, which meant in that time fighting off a bunch of evil all around them to get that nation to a place that a Messiah could come and establish a new covenant and to usher in a new people called the church. And so sometimes we can just zoom in and read something and we forget what is the greater story that's happening here. But two, I would say be careful drawing hard lines because all you really need to do is dig a little bit and you're going to see plenty of judgment and truth in the New Testament and plenty of grace and mercy in the Old Testament. In fact, let me just show you a couple of examples of grace from the Old Testament. Uh, A few weeks ago, my wife and I were up here teaching and she gave this nugget about when Adam and Eve were being banished from the garden, God actually stepped in with this major act of grace and he covered them in a way that they couldn't do themselves, and he stepped in. Uh, Later on, we see that Noah's family is spared. Huge act of mercy to preserve humanity right through this one family. Abraham and Sarah conceiving 
a child. She was 90, right? Talk about grace. It's a big act of grace to give them uh, their child. Uh, this child would be spared through a sacrifice, right? Through, through this ram um, that was caught in the thicket to be able to spare Isaac's life, which just foreshadows beautiful things about who Jesus is, seeing little nuggets of grace in the Old Testament. Uh, later on, Joseph is saved. What his brothers meant for evil, God actually uses for good. He saves him, elevates him to a point of influence to be able to preserve the whole nation of Israel through a famine. And y'all notice, this is just Genesis, right? We can trace throughout all of the Old Testament and see grace upon grace where God chooses to do life with sinful humanity. So we're 10 minutes in. Some of you are going, what does this have to do with David? Right, that's what we're here to study. Well, the story today is what some scholars have said is the greatest act of grace in all of the Old Testament. And if that's true, then that means that grace is going to peak in the Old Testament through a story of a man that you may never have even heard of before. And you probably won't hear much about after this, really outside of this story. And it's a tongue twister of a name, so forgive me if I mix it up a few times today. But his name is Mephibosheth. And we find him in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. But one more point of context. This is a very rough breakdown of the two books and kind of how they're divided. But you see that at the very end of 1 Samuel, uh, Saul and his son Jonathan are killed in battle. And so 2 Samuel kind of picks up this reign of David as he's now king, but when this happens, I'm sure there are very mixed feelings for David, because now the path to the throne that he's been promised and anointed for is actually open, but his best friend Jonathan has been killed, and Jonathan's dad, who's the king's, or the, the Lord's anointed, which David cares a lot about, and so you've got this, this mix of feelings happening, but David's actually not promoted as king immediately. Okay, this is one thing that I've been learning and uh, restudying. I always just assumed that David was the next king of Israel uh, after Saul. He wasn't. Saul's son, Ishbosheth, is actually promoted as king for a few years, while David just takes the throne in a small uh, portion of Israel called Judah. And a couple years after that, some folks actually go and they kill Ishbosheth, Saul's son. And they come to David to bring good news. They're like, look, we did it. We took him out. It's your throne. And you know what David does? He has them killed. Because he's like, this, this is not how we do things. We don't take things into our own hands. He really, really cares about the way that God is progressing this story. But what we're seeing here, and the reason I bring it up is David's family is being pitted against Saul's family in a lot of ways. Israel had made Saul's son king, so the next best thing would be to make Saul's grandson king, right? But they don't. They say, actually, David... The guy who slayed Goliath, we will now see him as our king. And so David becomes king of all of Israel. And he has some good moments that we'll see in 2 Samuel, like today. Uh, and he has some very terrible moments, like we'll see next week. But when we get to 2 Samuel 9, there's been a, a lot of progression of the nation of Israel, a lot of battles. And David gets to a point where now he remembers something. 2 Samuel 9.1, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. So what is he remembering, right? He doesn't come up with this on his own. If you read backwards to 1 Samuel 20, uh, verse 14, we see this interaction with David and his best friend Jonathan. And 
Jonathan actually asked David, will you show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed? Well, why is Jonathan afraid that David's going to kill him? Well, it's in this moment, in this story that Jonathan has found out that his father, Saul, is actually trying to kill David. He's like, Saul wouldn't try to do that. David's like, yes, he has. And the writing is on the wall now where Jonathan's seeing like, oh, there's tension here. David, if something happens and I'm left, will you show me loving kindness? I think to help get our minds around this, think about what happens in a change of dynasty and why Jonathan would be so scared. Think about modern college football context, okay? When a head coach is canned, what happens to all the assistants? 99% of the time, they're gone. Some may trinkle in and get to stay, but most of the time, they're gone. Well, on a much more brutal scale, it wasn't unheard of in this time when a king was removed from the throne, usually by being killed, the whole family was wiped out to prevent any battle of like someone in that family trying to actually take back the throne. And so Jonathan can see it, like there's something happening here, there's writing on the wall. And I have the kindness parts underlined because this is a very key Hebrew word and theme that we'll see in the Old Testament. It's called hesed. It's the, the loving kindness, the undeserved grace and mercy of God. And Jonathan shows back in the original uh, promise where the root of it is. Notice, he doesn't just say, show me unfailing kindness. He says, show me this kindness like the Lord's kindness. But that's where the root of this hesed actually is. And now David is saying, oh, I remember something, something that I promised. Even though he knows Jonathan's dead, he's wondering, is there anyone in that lineage that is still alive? This is him showing mercy and grace to Saul's descendants, which is the same family that had tried to kill him. And by the way, you could back up to Mark's talk from last week, kind of the peak of the Old Testament has said of the Davidic covenant. And that steadfast love, guess what word that is? That's hesed. And so David, that's why I think it was put before this, we're seeing that David has been granted this hesed love from God. He says, I took it from Saul because of his disobedience. I'm not gonna take it from you. You have this. Now shepherd it well. And you've got David remembering, like, I've committed to do something. And it's out of the Lord's loving kindness that I want to do this. So Saul has pursued David to try to kill him. And now David is actually pursuing Saul's family to show them hesed. So he asks a simple question, is there anyone left in the lineage? And there shouldn't be, right? He doesn't know of anyone, and he's the king. Surely he would know. And surely that person would have been promoted to, to the throne. But he's told, well, there's a servant of Saul named Ziba. And uh, Ziba's farming Saul's land. And you might ask him. He might know. So he goes to Ziba. And Ziba's like, actually, there is one descendant who is still alive. And he says he's a son of Jonathan. And two things you need to know about him. He's lame in both feet. And he's living in Lodabar. Now, how had he become lame in both feet. What do we know about uh, this guy? He wasn't born that way. Again, I show you the loops. If you back up to 2 Samuel chapter 4, we're actually given a little bit of a snippet about Mephibosheth. It's a little prequel that kind of seems out of order. In fact, in the NIV, they put parentheses around it. It just seems like it's an aside. But what we have here is that um, this glimpse of when, when Jonathan and Saul had died in battle, 
um, it shows that Jonathan had a son, actually, who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news came out that they had died. And out of fear, his nurse picks him up to flee. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled as a five-year-old. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, it doesn't seem very important to the story right here. It feels like it is a prequel. But what it's showing us is actually there was someone who could have taken the throne, right? But because of what happened, and he's five years old and lame in both feet, he was not fit to be the king. And his injury had obviously been something that he wasn't able to recover from, because when we pick it back up in 2 Samuel chapter 9, he now has a son, so he's probably around 20 years old, but he's still lame in both feet. And so it says he also is living in Lodabar. What is Lodabar? Well, let's just take the literal translation of it. Debar would be a pasture or a thing, an, an entity. Lo is a negator. It just means not that. So really, he's living in the place of no thing, of nothing. When you literally translate Mephibosheth's name, it's from the mouth of shame. So this is the guy that's alive. In the world's eyes, he is a no one from nothing who can't walk on his own. He's a broken man trying to raise a son, living in another man's house in a barren wasteland. And so you've got David with this concept of hesed that he knows he wants to apply, but it's going from a concept to now there's a person, and he has to make a decision. And for a king to closely associate himself with someone who is disabled could have been seen as a major weakness, especially in that culture. And in that last uh, verse of this paragraph, you'll see that David says, go get him. I want you to bring Mephibosheth here. So Mephibosheth comes. He actually bows down. And who's the one to speak first? It's David. And he says, oh, please circle this or just put it away for later. He says his name. Have you noticed, did you notice, Ziba did not say his name. Ziba said it was a son of Jonathan who was lame in both feet and living in a place of nothing. David sees him, and he says, Mephibosheth. Don't be afraid. Put yourself in Mephibosheth's, man, I got to say that a lot, Mephibosheth's seat. He doesn't know anything about this promise, probably. He was five when everything went down. He's been hiding his existence, and here the king wants to see him and has found out that someone in Saul's lineage is alive. He's probably terrified. Like, this is it. This is how I die. I've been hiding but they found me out. And David tells him, no, no, no. I am going to show you hesed, loving kindness, not for your sake, but for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And with that, I want to restore you to the land of your grandfather. Ziba's been farming it. I'm going to keep him farming it, but you're going to reap the rewards of it. And on top of that, the best invitation of it all, he says, you will always have a seat at my table. You get to eat with me, with the king. I'm Mephibosheth, how do we respond to that, right? Like, this is awesome, going from nothing to everything. But look at his response, it's very telling. What is your servant? Not even who is your servant, like what? Can't even see his own dignity as a human. That you should notice a dead dog like me. By the way, this is the same phrase that David used about himself when he was running from Saul. And he's pleading with Saul, like, I'm not a threat to you. I'm just a, a flea, a dead dog. 
Mephibosheth saying, I have nothing to offer, nothing, nothing to give. People have to take care of me. I am completely unworthy to be at your table. And I can just see David smiling and saying, yes. Would it be Hesed if you were worthy? I want to do this for you. And I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at Jonathan. This isn't anything you've done. This is on his behalf. So what happens? Ziba farms the land. Uh, Mephibosheth benefits from it. And it says that he ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons for the rest of his life. He could have been seen as an enemy, but he was treated as a friend. And there was mercy in David not killing him when he found out about him, but there's grace in the invitation to way more, to being invited to the table. So that's the story. 13 verses. It's a very short uh, story in the Old Testament. You've got some undeserving dude, because of who his dad was, that's getting invited into a table that he has no business being at. And it seems kind of out of place because the story picks up and David and Israel go back to like defeating all these people, right? Advancing the kingdom. And this little story, this doesn't really change the kingdom, right? Right? Or does it? Please don't miss this, okay? This is the kingdom in the story. Yes, God is doing something through Israel, establishing them as a nation. There's a foreshadowing of a Messiah who will come, but this is one of the clearest glimpses of the gospel that we have in the Old Testament. And this has everything to do with what the true kingdom of God is like. It's a short story with massive implications in the midst of this Old Testament story. Think of the parallels to the gospel of Jesus that we see in this. Number one, all of this was rooted in an action based on hesed love, undeserved loving kindness, grace, and mercy. Where does David get this concept? He gets it from God, and he shows it to Mephibosheth for the sake of someone else. Uh, Jared Fincher and I were talking a few weeks ago. He and his wife, Adrian, lead a community group, and their community group had been discussing what is it that makes David a man after God's own heart? And I pondered that, and as I started reading this story, I'm like, it's this? It's these moments that we see, where it's, these are not David's actions. It's when the heart of God is transforming the heart of David. That's what makes him a man after God's own heart. It's when God's actions, when David picks up on them and he begins emulating them. That's where we see the true beauty here. And this is what Christ does for us, this undeserved loving kindness, where he pursues the undeserving, right? He, he actually goes out of his way. Like Mephibosheth could have been seen as an enemy of David's throne without Christ. We are enemies. We are alienated from him. We are the ones living in Lodabar, a place of nothing, living in our shame. And it's not only his invitation, it's, it's the fact that, the, honestly, this is one of the things that makes the story different. David called for Mephibosheth. Jesus comes to us and pursues us. The, the nothing, the making himself nothing to pursue the nothing, that's Philippians 2, that whole bell curve of Jesus coming to us to bring us into something. And for the sake of Jonathan, Mephibosheth receives something. For the sake of Jesus, nothing we deserve, we receive something. And it's an intimate and forever invitation to dine with the king. 
not just sparing life, that's mercy, but restoring relationship and inheritance. The lame eating at the king's table. And remember, he says Mephibosheth's name. And there's so many prophecies and wordings around Jesus being the good shepherd. It says, I, Isaiah 43, I will redeem you. I will call you by name. There's an intimate, personal invitation from the king. And this fourth one, I put a star by it because it's not explicit in the text. But I think we could infer that every single time the table was set, every time, Mephibosheth needed to be carried. Every time. Not a one-time like, hey, you're bowing down, get up, come sit at the table. Every single time. And I feel that in my own life. Not just an unworthiness for salvation, like I can't earn my salvation, but every single day when I just miss, when I get angry at my kids, when I get frustrated at my wife or with my job, when I intentionally walk away from a moment of grace because I'm tired and lazy and I don't want to interact with it or deal with it, when I feel my life, fill my life so much with things I can't even see what God's doing, but then I come to a moment of clarity and I see Jesus saying, hey, you need some rest. Come to me. This is what I feel. Unworthiness. And I have to be carried every single day to the table. Sometimes, or often, by Jesus himself. Other times, alongside him is my community, lifting me to that point to get back to the table. And as I'm studying this, I just can't help but get this picture of a table out of my head. It just seems very, very evident. So we put one up here. And there's nothing significant about this. It's a cute table, right? But it's just a piece of furniture. But what it becomes is a scene for relationship, for peace, for conversation, for restoration, for nourishment. Y'all realize this is one of the main reasons that we want community to happen off of this campus so you can get at the table and, and have conversations. It's the reason that we want cell groups with students to do the same. Parents, I know it is a major ask to cook for 50 high school boys. That is a lot, but there is so much value in young men and women getting to experience the peace of what happens at a table with their peers, having conversations. The table has been a place of, of, of peace and this visual for the Lord all the way throughout Scripture. Go back to the tabernacle um, and the temple, and you'll see that the table played a major value in God's presence. Psalm 23, David's probably most famous psalm. There's a line in there. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Look at the early church in Acts. What's one of the first things that they did as a church as they worshiped God? They got around the table and they broke bread together. Uh, Jesus watches how the Pharisees utilize the table. He says, you're doing it all wrong. You're just inviting your rich, powerful friends to gain influence. The table is meant for the poor and the broken and the lame. And don't you think that when Jesus is talking about that, he has a visual of Mephibosheth's story in his mind. Jesus comes to the temple. He sees the misuse of what's happening, and what does he do with those tables? He flips them. He says, this is not what this place or what these things are meant to be used for. The Pharisees get ticked as they watch Jesus sit around a table with a bunch of tax collectors, and they're like, you're eating with sinners. And he's like, yes, I am, because that's what I've come to do. Fast forward all the way to Revelation 3. This 
this visual, this prophetic vision of Jesus saying, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens, you know what he says? I will come in and I will dine with you and you with me. And there's just something beautiful about the visual of a table. And the visual of Jesus' table specifically. When I read this story, I think of three different things. First, I think of Mephibosheth and David. I think that's very, very clear. I also see what Christ does for all of humanity through the restoration that he brings by inviting us to be a part of his family and to have relationship with God. And I don't always try to read myself into a story. I think that can be very dangerous sometimes. But with this one, how personal it was for Mephibosheth, I think I would be missing if I didn't see God showing that there's a personal invitation for me at the table with him. And it just got me thinking, what would our ministry, our church, our city look like if we learned to invite people not just to the cross, but to the table? And I don't just mean like your physical table, although there is a great case for biblical hospitality and what all it does. What I mean is the table of Jesus and inviting people to experience not just what Christ has accomplished, but the daily life that he invites you into, because this is the picture of abiding. When Jesus sits across from it and says, tell me, tell me how your day's going. Tell me where your heart's at right now. Hey, let's open my word together. Let me breathe life into you. Let me let you cry here, rejoice here, lament all the things in an intimate relationship with him. And it feels like Jesus solidifies this visual for us, right? Not in the story of Mephibosheth. It's foreshadowed there for sure and throughout scripture. But when he gives us one of two commands for the church to do until he comes back. One is baptism, when believers profess that they wanna follow Jesus. And the other is communion. He says, when you gather, I want you to get at the table. And I'm gonna give you some very specific instructions. And when I think about these two ordinances, I think of the elements first and foremost, the water and what it represents and the wine and the bread and what they represent of what Christ has done on the cross. Those are very significant, okay? Don't hear me saying they're not. But don't forget about the settings of each of them. So with baptism, Jesus chooses a river, which I think is important. He chooses a river and he chooses himself to be baptized to symbolize what's happening that when we go under, like what Christ does for us from death to life is he takes that stuff away. It's gone. It's downriver. And we get to be raised to live life on this earth before we physically die. And what did he do with communion? He chose a table. He could have gone to the mountain peak. He can carry bread and wine. Like he could have gone up there and said, look at everything. This is where we're going to do it. He got in a room with the men that he loved, that he was releasing ministry to, and he put them around the table. An intimate setting, an invitation to life with him, to remembering what life with him looks like, to accepting what he was about to do, but to remember every single time that you gather that you are invited into intimacy with the King of Kings to sit at his table. And you and I may have to be carried there. If you feel unworthy to take this seat across from Jesus, welcome to the club. I feel it every day. But can I put on the lens of grace and see that Christ is sitting there inviting me and saying, I went through a lot to get you here. I want you to experience this. And if you need to be picked up by some friends, 
great. They're welcome here too. So this morning, we get to partake in this together, in this communion practice together. This is an invitation rooted in hesed. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But by the grace of God, he invites us into daily living with him. And this is a beautiful reminder of that, that we get to do as a church. It's an invitation from him to walk with him and to do life with him. And so uh, we're going to give you time to reflect uh, through worship as the elements are passed. And then Matt will lead us uh, through them together so you can hold on to them. But take this moment, these moments, to reflect on that. Though I'm unworthy, I get an invitation to sit with the King of Kings and walk through life with him. sing out these familiar words with me and sing worthy of every song.
keep singing worthy is the lamb and I just invite you during this time we'll keep playing this you don't have to sing the words on the screen but this is a moment to connect with the king who invites us to the table and the lamb who is slain these elements that we hold in our hands the bread and the cup and so we'll keep singing if, if you want to sing something different sing another song Anything that stirs in your heart, this is an opportunity to do that. Otherwise, it's a chance to reflect. But let's reflect on the Lamb who is slain on our behalf and invites us to the table. Even though we're unworthy, we're called and invited. Worthy is the and you're worthy to receive all praise. Isn't it good to be invited to the table? Oh, this morning you hold the bread and the cup. And would you take and eat and would you drink in remembrance of him and in the celebration of being invited, though we are unworthy, into the goodness of life with Christ. Would you eat and drink?
fellowship. As we go, may we remember that we have been invited to the table of grace, God's amazing grace. And I have a couple of other invitations for you. Our community team will be in the foyer in that middle booth. Come by and see us. We would love to meet you. We would love to help answer any questions that you may have and help you get connected. And secondly, we'd love to pray for you. I know that Judy and Dick and Connie will be up to your left in front of the baptismal. Make your way that way if you need prayer this morning. They would love to pray with you and for you. And so now, brothers and sisters, may the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We love you, church. Have a great week. <laughs>